I want to welcome you here. Uh, this is a, a day where we are ending a book of the Bible we've been preaching through. If you're new here with us, uh, we have been in a series uh, through Jonah and Nahum. Uh, the series is called The Great City of Nineveh because both of those books look at the city of Nineveh and, and speak to it or about it. And so today we are in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. And I invite you, if you have a Bible, you can turn there or as we work through it, uh, they, the words will be up on the screen. Uh, but this is really an opportunity for us to, to delve once again into um, a sort of a heavier book of the Bible, uh, one where there are some stern words from God to Nineveh because of their evil. But in that, we're going to see uh, a lot for what God has for us as well. So I'd invite you to uh, turn there. I'm going to pray first, and then we are going to uh, dig into the last bit of Nahum. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity once again to dig into your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this series, for the, the historical and biblical account of your interactions with the people of Nineveh, God. Uh, I pray that this would be an instructive time for us. Help us, Lord, to see in your words to the Ninevites uh, the words that you have for us as well. I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, an open mind, a soft heart to these things. Lord, you'd help me to speak words that are indeed helpful. And God, that this would be an uplifting and encouraging time for us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a lot of things about life that we may know to be true uh, in some sense, but we struggle to understand it fully. There are a lot of things like about what it means to be a human being that we sort, we sort of understand, but actually we, we don't fully comprehend it because perhaps it's not our experience or perhaps because we don't, we don't just see it clearly. One of the things, though, that helps us to help each other, you know, to understand what it means to be a human being uh, is the arts. Things like movies, things like novels, poems, plays. Uh, all of these things are, are written or are created uh, most of the time to help unpack some truth about humanity. And that's why we tend to like them, right? We like to watch movies, read books, because it, it tells us a bit about ourselves, even if it's about someone across on the other side of the planet, it, it unpacks some reality of what it means to be a human being. And very often, those, those truthful, compelling stories that we read or watch are also kind of unsettling in their truthfulness. Uh, there's, a, there's a book that's been on my shelf for like 15 years that is yet unfinished, mostly because uh, it's, I just couldn't make it through it. It was too sad. Uh, the book is called Angela's Ashes. You know that book by Frank McCourt, uh, written, I don't know, a number of years ago. He is from Ireland. It's a story, basically, uh, sort of an autobiography about his, his life as a young boy uh, coming over with his family uh, to the New York area as an Irish immigrant. And he just tells how difficult it was. He had an alcoholic father who was in and out of work. He had a mother who was slipping in and out of depression. Uh, they had no money. His dad wasn't around a lot of the time. And I just remember not being able to get through it. I, I remember uh, reading a scene where he was caring for, he's like eight years old and looking after his younger siblings, like five, two, and three. Uh, his dad was gone somewhere. He didn't know where. His mom was just not able to cope and they didn't have any food in the house. No means of getting any food. He just had some sour milk and a little bit of cereal. And so I remember him pouring the sour milk and then adding sugar to it to try to feed it to his, to his younger siblings. And I just remember like, Crying and being like, I can't, this is chapter one. How am I going to get through the whole book? So I just put it on the shelf. And I was like, it, it was true. It was compelling, but I just, it, was, it was hard to read. 
There are movies like that too. There's a movie uh, called Lion on Netflix that you're, you're not allowed to watch this week, but after this week, <laughs> you can watch it, and I recommend you do. It's, it's really gripping. It's about this young boy, uh, like five-year-old boy who gets lost, separated from his family in India. He's Indian, and uh, he gets on a train, and it takes him a thousand uh, kilometers away to another area where he doesn't speak the dialect, and he's separated there. He's, he's preyed upon by human traffickers. It, it's just heart-wrenching because of its truth. It's hard to watch those things, hard to read them, and yet they communicate some essential truths about what it means to be a human being. And our section today of Nahum is a, is a little bit like that, where we are going to see some essential truths about what it means to be human, but it is somewhat unsettling. See, once again, we are at ground level for the destruction of Nineveh at the hand of the Babylonians. But we don't just see the destruction of the city. We also are going to hear God's words spoken to the people of Nineveh. Words of judgment and condemnation. And the language that he uses is startling in its frankness. But also very revealing in what it says about human nature. Especially what it says about our sin as human beings. So that really is going to be the focus of our time together. It's an exposition of the realities, effects, and consequences of sin. Both in the lives of the people of Nineveh and in our lives. Now the goal here, just so we're clear, is not simply to treat this text in Nineveh like a car wreck on the highway of life. And we kind of slow down and look and say, boy, that, that's too bad for them. That's horrible. Right? It's not just that, because God wrote it to his own people back then and by extension to us today. So a better frame of mind for this is to imagine that we are uh, in our doctor's office. And the doctor is giving us uh, some, some bad news about a condition we have. Like perhaps he said, look, you have diabetes. And so he or, or, or she, they begin to explain. You know, here's what it means. Here's how you have to take care of yourself now that you have diabetes. Your blood sugar level, insulin level, you have to watch it all the time. And after explaining, you know, the situation, they probably will say, look, just so you know, if you don't take care of yourself, this could go really bad. That they're, look, people end up in comas. People end up dead because they haven't cared for their, their diabetes. You need to really watch this. You need to be careful. Because what's in them is also in you. And that's kind of the way it is with the people of Nineveh. They're, we're going to see, in case you're not familiar, their wickedness far exceeds our own. The atrocities, the violence. And yet what is in them is also in us, which is a, a heart of sin. So the value of this text is that it gives us a glimpse into the truest and darkest parts of our own heart, and also we see God's righteous response to it. So there are four points to God our time, each of them having to do with what God, uh, the reality that God shows us about sin. And for each point, we'll read through a section of the text. So the first point is this. God exposes sin for what it really is, and it is woeful. Now, woeful uh, means to be miserable. It, It means terrible. It means deplorable. And this is how God describes Nineveh. So I'm going to read the first portion of the text here, first four verses. Uh, God says this, Woe to the bloody city. That's Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, Dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. So we'll stop there. 
And I think you can see uh, why it is that God pronounces woe on this city. This is a city with a culture of death, of deception, and of greed. We see this in the very first verse. It says, woe to the bloody city, that's the death, all full of lies, that's deception, and plunder, that's, that's greed. This is the culture of Nineveh. They were a city that, uh, that were violent and wicked to all the people around them. They conquered quickly. They acted harshly. They were brutal with their enemies. Uh, where it says in verse 3, the hosts of slain heaps of corpses, dead bodies, that isn't actually the des- destruction of Nineveh. That's how they treated the people around them. It's like they left a wake of bodies uh, in their wake. I said that wrong. You know what I mean? As they went forward, that, that's who they were. So their culture was one that embraced death, relished that. They also were a culture of deception. It says there in verse 1, they were full of lies, and later on that they betrayed nations. Uh, there's a story in 2 Kings that talks about how they uh, surrounded Jerusalem, the, the Assyrian army, and then they sent a messenger in to the king of uh, Jerusalem at the time, Israel, God's people, and said, look, if you surrender... Uh, we are going to let you live. We're going to let you pretty much live as you are, but we're going to rule over you. So you can either fight us and lose, or you can you know, open up your doors and we will, it'll go better for you. And so they, they said, okay, we'll do that. They opened up their gates and what happened? The Assyrian army, they came in, they destroyed everyone. Or not everyone, many they took into exile. There's bodies all over the place. They totally lied. They deceived them so they could get what they wanted. That was how they behaved all the time. They were quick to betray others and use others to get what they wanted. But they were also full of greed. Uh, the first verse there again says they were full of plunder. Like they had stolen from every, all the nations around them. And, and it mentions also there that there is prostitution. And by that it means that they were willing to buy and sell each other. Sell human beings to get what they wanted. Uh, there was this sense in which they could use anything and anyone. That was, that, that's their greed that, that there was no limit that they would not go to to get what they wanted. And so like I said, Nineveh's sins, Nineveh's life is far exceeds our own in terms of atrocities, in terms of sin. But, but the truth of the matter is that we can see these same things in our culture as well. I mean, our culture is also a culture of death, a culture of deception, and a, a culture of greed. We see it all around us. Did you know that Canada is the only democracy in the world that has no laws regulating abortion? We are in the company of North Korea when it comes to any, any laws. We have no laws regulating full-term, full-term abortion. There are laws on our books when it comes to uh, fines and jail time if you were to destroy certain uh, species of bird eggs. But, but when it comes to a full-term child, that there is no problem in our in our culture, with putting that child to death. See, we think as a culture that we are all about improving the standard of life, and in many ways we are. We, we as a culture combat against things like human trafficking. That's a good thing. We, we want to ensure the rights, the, the life of many, but we need to also recognize that for the sake of convenience, we also are a culture of death. And we are a culture of deceit. We see this very clearly in our own lives. I mean, just think for a moment, do you not have a a little machine in your head, a a little propaganda machine that very easily spins the truth of your life to make it more palatable, to make people kind of like you more, to frame everything in your life a certain way? 
For example, here are a couple of phrases that uh, you may recognize. Uh, Does this phrase not roll off our lips rather uh, easily? Mom, I'm pretty much finished my homework. (laughs) We know what that phrase means, doesn't it? It means I have not yet looked at my homework. (laughs) That, That I haven't even thought about my homework. I've been playing Xbox. But we say that because we don't, we don't want to admit the truth. What about this one? Uh, honey, I meant to be home earlier. What that often means is I didn't mean to be home earlier. I wanted to work as long as I could until the very point where you would be not so mad that the evening would be ruined, but just, you know, a little bit mad. That's where I want to be every day. That's, that's, that's what I mean to do. But we don't say that because that would be horrible. We want the people in our lives to think better of us. That's... Our deception is very evident if we really think about the things that we say. Now, we also have a culture of greed. I don't just mean, of, of course, the things that we buy, but, but even with people. I mean, don't we, don't we tend to use the people around us to, to get what we want in our relationships, in our work environments? And we sell ourselves by having no moral compass in certain uh, situations, no convictions. We be- betray Others even betray our own morals for selfish gain. We, we're greedy in that sense. See, the woefulness of humanity is everywhere that we look. The problem, by and large, is that we don't want to look there. We don't want to examine those parts of ourselves. Because sin is, is hard to look at. What this text is, is doing is, it's like shining a spotlight on, on the vile nature of Nineveh, but by extension, us as well. God is saying it's, it's important that we look at this. It's important that we recognize the woefulness, the, how deplorable, how miserable is sin so that we would identify it in our own lives. So that we see the truth about it. Because the first thing we saw is that sin is woeful, sin is woeful but also we see number two that uh, sin is shameful. To be ashamed means that you feel bad about something you've done. Now the Ninevites, they did not feel bad about anything. They, they didn't seem to. All of the atrocities, all of the evil that they committed, they actually celebrated that. They would have stone relief, like they're artists, that the king would say, I want you to etch in stone a picture of me, uh, my brutality against the enemies. Put that on the wall. They would have totem poles of the human heads of their enemies on a, on a pike. They'd decorate their cities. That, that's what they celebrated. They, they, they were not ashamed about any of their evil. And so God's response here in this passage is to expose their sin and their shame to the world. Now here in these next few verses, verses 5 to 7, contains really some of the heaviest, strongest language from God to the people of Nineveh. Here's verse 5. God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Very clearly, shocking language. But it's not meant to be literal language. This is not saying that God will literally lift up skirts or throw filth. What it it means is that he is going to expose the vileness, the sin of Nineveh. Like when God says, I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms uh, at your shame, he means I will expose the darkest parts of your lives, the very depths of your sin. Because biblically speaking, uh, shame and sin and nakedness, they go together. Uh, Since the very first sin, when Adam and Eve 
sinned against God, right away they, they realized they were naked. And they felt ashamed and they went and they covered themselves. This, this is what God is pointing to, that, that Nineveh should be ashamed because of their wickedness and vileness and yet they do not feel that yet. When God says, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, what he means is that he's going to put the filthiness of their hearts and lives on display for the world to see. And you might think, man, why is God speaking this way? Why would he do this? Why would he put on this kind of a spectacle of horror? And the answer is to show the truth. See, I know this language is difficult to hear, but but at its core, there is a principle here that, that we actually highly value, that, that we celebrate in our culture, and that is exposing the truth, exposing those areas of people's lives which are hidden, which are corrupt. I mean, do we not, do we not appreciate it when there is an investigative journalist who has done some digging to get the dirt on some government corruption, some company that's doing things wrong, and they... And they they shine a light on it. We, we want that. That's a good thing. It holds people accountable. It helps us know the truth about the things that are going on in our culture and community. Haven't we watched dozens of documentaries that expose the shameful truth about all sorts of things that we eat and wear and buy? I mean, one of them that Don and I watched uh, recently is called The True, True Cost. This one here. It, it's it's an expose worldwide showing the, the shameful uh, habits and behaviors of those in the fashion industry. How, how they use people all over the world, pay them far below poverty wages, have them in environments where, where the environment itself is hurt and they themselves are hurt, also that we can have clothes that are affordable. Clothes that we buy and then we, we throw away. As you watch this documentary, it is shocking. The imagery, the stories, the truths that are revealed. And it's meant to be shocking. It's meant for those that watch it to feel a sense of shame about something that we don't, we don't even feel bad about. It's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for people to, to shine a light in that way. And this is, this is what Nahum is doing. We are meant to be shocked by this language. God is not grandstanding. He's not making a big deal about nothing. We're meant to be shocked because sin is shocking. Sin is shameful and we should feel ashamed. But by and large, we don't. We don't because our appetites have been uh, shifted, haven't they? I mean, just because of the, the environment that we live in, the, the, the level of sin, the level of filth that we walk around in the air that we breathe, our conscience has been so seared that we don't tend to feel bad about those things which we should feel bad about. I mean, just think of the things that we, that we watch, the things that we read, the things that we view, the thoughts that go on in our own minds, the things that we do while we are alone. See, the more that we tolerate sin in our lives, the less that we feel shame. And God wants for us to see the truth so that we meet, might see ourselves clearly. Uh, I'm not sure if you've been following along with us in Lent, uh, there's a guide that David mentioned, and in it, each week, there's a prayer, uh, and the prayer is from a, a longer Puritan prayer called the Valley of Vision, and this week's prayer really had some, I think, poignant words that spoke exactly to this issue of, of the value, needing to see ourselves clearly. So I'm going to read just a couple of uh, stanzas from it. 
couple of lines from it, really. And I'd ask you to just consider what the person, this is a prayer to God, what they're saying to God about themselves. So here it is. It is a good day to me when thou givest me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but thou are my greatest good. My country, family, church, fare worse because of my sins. For sinners bring judgment in thinking sins are small or that God is not angry with them. Let me not take other good men as my example and think that I am good because I am like them. For all good men are not as good as thou desirest. See, isn't that what we need? A, a true glimpse of ourselves? Isn't that our, our struggle? That we don't, we don't see that the reality of the, of the brokenness and crookedness of our own heart. I mean, can we see the way in which the people in our lives are worse off because of our sin? Can you see the tendency in your own heart, the tendency I feel to, to minimize my own sin, to explain it away, and do we not compare ourselves with others to say, man, I'm better than that person. I'm almost as good as that one. And it gives us a sense of peace. Forgetting that that's not the right standard to measure by. See, what Nahum is doing in a very graphic way is shining the light of God's word onto those dark parts of the human soul. Uh, it reminds me of a friend of mine who, she was telling me the story when, when she was younger, she used to hang out at kind of bars and clubs and... Uh, and she said, at closing time in a bar, you know, they say last round and time for everyone to go home. But what they also do is they change the lighting. Normally in, in a bar, right, it's very dim, right? So everyone looks good. Everyone's kind of, you know, you can't really see each other. Everyone, but at closing time, what they do is they, sh- they turn on the work lights, all the fluorescent lights. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, and they, and they look at each other. And it's not so pretty anymore, right? They, she, she said they call them the ugly lights. The ugly lights would turn on. And you would see the reality of where you are, how you're made up, how people are, and you, you would go home. And this is really what Nahum is doing, shining the, the ugly lights on ourselves. And we can't help but look and, and turn away. You even see there in the text, whoever looks at Nineveh shrinks from them. Because in the light of God's word, we see every, every vile practice, every detestable thing. We see it for what it is. See, what is there in your life that you, that you don't want exposed? Are there things in your life that you should feel bad about, but you don't? Have you prayed about those things? I mean, that is the answer. That is what God is leading us to in this. It's not simply for us to recognize the depth of our sin and shame and just sit there. He wants for us to to turn to him, to to seek grace, to, to seek help. But to do that, we first need to pray, Lord, would you help me to see myself clearly? Because I don't. I I naturally try to always put a rosy picture on everything. There's huge value in in seeing ourselves in the stark light of the word of God, in the way that God is speaking about Nineveh here in this passage. So sin is shameful. But thirdly, we see that God also exposes sin to be weak. See, one of the most devastating issues of sin is that it distorts our view of ourself. Uh, we, We tend to think that we are much more solid and secure and strong than we really are. That's definitely how Nineveh thought about itself. I mean, they, they were the biggest city at the time. They were wealthy and powerful. They thought everything was going great. I mean, no one could touch them. God reveals 
their true weakness by reminding them about another city that thought that it was invincible, and that is the city of Thebes. So in this next section, there's going to be a, a contrast, and the Nahum is speaking to Nineveh and saying, hey, you remember Thebes? Here's what he says, verses 8 and 9. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Now there, what it's saying is, well, here's a picture, just so you can see. Thebes is on the edge of the Nile. And even here, you can see in their ruins, it looks quite beautiful. At the time, it was just a fantastic city. And their, their strength was in part because they were on the Nile. So you see there, their rampart was the sea. They thought no one could attack them that way. Their other strength was the alliances they had with some of the other nations, like Cush and northern Egypt, Put and Libya. Thebes thought that they were invincible, and yet Assyria itself were the ones that destroyed it in 663 B.C., And so what Nahum is saying, what God is saying through Nahum is, hey, remember how you destroyed that invincible city? What do you think is going to happen to you? Look at uh, verse 10. This is what it says about what happened to Thebes as Assyria attacked her. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. This, just so we're clear, this is what Assyria does to its enemies. Another example. They would kill babies. They would gamble for people. This is the depth of their wickedness. But the point Nahum is making here is that just as Thebes fell to you, Nineveh, you were going to fall to Babylon. There are no invincible cities. Verses 11 through 13 describe what's going to happen to Nineveh. You also, it says, will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Now, those last few lines are really the, the key there. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. See, the truth is that a life lived trusting in someone other than God is an inherently fragile life. See, Assyria was a mighty nation. In many ways, I mean, from an earthly point of view, they were as strong as it gets. They had wealth, they had power, they had military strength. And yet the point that God is making here is is that if you have earthly strength apart from God, it's really weakness. It's in your sin and you're trusting in something else that, that you are inherently weak. And the point for us is that as individuals, the very same thing can be true of us, that we have a sense of strength when in fact we are weak. And the difference between the two really does come down to where our hope lies. See, there there are many of us here and certainly in our community that, that feel very strong. That there's wealth, there's maybe physical health, there's a good brain in their head, there's skills they have to work with, they look ahead to their future and think, man, things are good. Things are Things are great. I have stability. I have purpose. And yet, what the Bible says is that if there is no hope in God, they're they're like a ripe fig. Just a little shake. A little circumstantial change in life and all of a sudden, they they fall to be devoured. I mean, you can see this if you stop and think about it. Just think for a moment about how long it would take for any one of us to get to a point of despair. See, in 2008, it happened in about a day. 
When the financial markets collapsed, there were people at the beginning of that day that felt like they were up here. And then by the end of the day, they were totally devastated. And sadly, in the weeks and months that came, there, there were a string of suicides as, as people just couldn't cope. There's no hope in life. All of their wealth, all of the things that they grabbed onto was gone. They were not as strong as they thought. For others, it happens in a matter of years. As a marriage slowly disintegrates and you're left in, in bitterness and anger and, and no way forward in life, seemingly. But again, for others, it takes only minutes. A phone call can change our lives. A phone call with someone on the other end, maybe the police, maybe the hospital, maybe a family member, a friend. Despair is never far from us if, if our strength is only in the circumstances of our lives, in the things of this world. But my hope is not to, not to breed anxiety. That the hope is... The goal is to see the truth that this text is leading us to. To see that that need not be the case. That there is a greater and deeper strength that comes with a hope in God. Apart from him, the truth that we see here is that, that as our life is rooted in something other than God, there is inherent weakness. It's like the gates are, are wide open and any adversary can come in and just decimate us. But with the Lord, with a God who is both sovereign and gracious and powerful, we can know that he is both working in the good and difficult circumstances of our lives to bring about good in this life and certainly in the life to come. See, what, what do you have right now to hang on to should that phone call come? What strength would there be if you are greatly shaken by life? Here we see the Ninevites, they have nothing else that they are, they are ultimately devastated because they have no true strength in the Lord. And this leads to the fourth thing we see, the most devastating, that God exposes sin for what it really is, and it is deadly. Now, in this last passage, this last uh, few verses, God once again calls Nineveh. He kind of, he calls them out to gather their strength. He says, you know, gather yourselves together. There's going to be a, a battle. The Babylonians are coming. But in the very next breath, he says, look, it's, but it's not really, there's not really any point. Because you are going to be destroyed. You are going to be cut down. You are going to die. That is what's coming your way. Let's look at verses 14 to 17. Here's what he says. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. See, in that last part, it's, it's speaking about the, the resources of Nineveh. Saying the people themselves, even if you were to multiply yourselves like grasshoppers or locusts, even then what would happen is like those insects, when the heat of the day comes, they all fly away. They're all gone. They're not there to, to support the, the nation. There's no real strength that you have. In the next verse, uh, that Nahum speaks directly to the king of Assyria, forcing him to see the reality of his disintegrating kingdom. It says this, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. 
your noble slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. It's a picture of the total collapse of this once mighty nation. And all the people that the king would normally go to for help and for you know, counsel and to try to build things up again, they're all gone. And they have no refuge. There's nowhere where they can find hope because all of their hope is gone. And it leads to this last verse where the ultimate gravity of the situation is made clear. Verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. There the, the key word is grievous. Uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, it, it means to, to lead to death. Uh, life-threatening. And what it's saying there is that you have a, a life-threatening wound. It will lead to your death. And this has been a constant refrain throughout Nahum. We've seen it in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, where God said, for those who oppose him, he will make a complete end. And in verse 2, it came again where God said to them in verse 14, I will make your grave. What, what's been very clear throughout the book of Nahum is the connection between sin and death. That there is, a, there is an unbreakable connection there that God is saying because of your sins, the destruction is coming. Death is coming for you. In fact, that's what we see throughout the word of God. That this connection between sin and death has been present since the first sin. It's what, what God said to Adam and Eve. If you eat of that fruit, if you go against my commands, you will die. And not just physical death. That is something that everyone will experience regardless of what we believe but also spiritual death, eternal death, under the, the judgment of God. In the book of Revelation, this, this second death is spoken about. It, it, it's where everything is leading. All the uh, human history, biblical history leading, the, the Revelation describes the, the time at the end, the time of judgment, and there it's, it's not just that we die. We know we die physically, but that there's a second death, a, a condemning death of God. And here's how it's described in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That list of, of things there are, is really examples of sin. It's the ways in which we as human beings go against God, and all of us fall into that category. All of us at some point have lied. All of us have had a lustful thought or a faithless thought. And the consequence, the just consequence is a eternal death. What we see here in Nahum is that God exposes sin for what it really is. It is woeful. It is shameful. It is weak and deadly, not just for the Ninevites, but for everyone everywhere. For all of us have this same grievous wound. All of us are being led because of the corrupt nature of our heart to this Final place. I know what you might be thinking. This is not a great ending to a book, right? It's a pretty bleak ending. This, there's a judgment, condemnation. I mean, not only, not only is Nineveh condemned, but do you see there in verse 19, it says, all who hear about their judgment, they clap. People hear, what happened to Nineveh? That's great. Man, I'm so glad for that. Why? Because everyone... Everyone had experienced their atrocities, their, their brutality. <clears throat> That's what it says in the very last part of the verse. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? It's as if God is responding to the Ninevites saying, oh, this seems a bit harsh, God. The answer is, who has not experienced your brutality? 
Who around you? Look around. Look around the world at that time. Everyone would have said they deserve what they're getting. They deserve to be punished. That death that they're experiencing is absolutely a just punishment. We see here at the book, end of the book of Nahum, a focus on the justice of God, the judgment of God. He's asking the question, should, should I not judge evil? Is it not right for me as a good judge to, to lay a penalty for evil? But the other thing this question does if you've been with us for the whole time, is it, it should remind you of another book that ends with a question. Because Jonah, if, if you remember, if you weren't here, I'll tell you, Jonah is the first book we looked at. Another prophet sent to Nineveh, the same people. But this time, God sends a messenger ahead of his judgment to, to warn them. And he says, look, if you repent, then you will be spared. And Jonah goes reluctantly, because he's a grumpy guy and he doesn't love the Ninevites. He knows how evil they are, but he still goes. And amazingly that the Ninevites, they do repent. They seem to repent and God shows them mercy. And Jonah is, man, he's ticked off because he knows how evil they are. And he's all bent out of shape and grumpy. And at the end of Jonah, God asks Jonah a question. And here's the question. Verse 11 of chapter four of Jonah, God says, and should, should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I don't know about the cattle exactly, but what we see here is an emphasis not on God's judgment, but on God's grace. He's, he's saying to Jonah, look, shouldn't I pity them? Shouldn't I have grace on them? Yes, they deserve judgment, but they don't, they don't know their right hand from their left. Morally speaking, they're lost. Should I not show them grace and mercy? And we're left now wondering, okay, so we've got one book that emphasizes the justice of God against this people who are wicked, but then another one that he showed great grace. There's a tension here. A tension not just in terms of the sins of Nineveh, but also for us. Because we are in the very same place. And we wonder, which is it, God? I mean, it's clear from both of these books that, that we deserve punishment as much as the Ninevites. And that if God is a just God, that he will punish evil, he has to. But it also seems clear that he really has a heart to save. And you know this tension exists throughout the whole Old Testament. Where we see both glimpses, pictures of his judgment against sin, but also his grace. Think of Noah. God brings judgment against the whole world, but then there's grace. He saves Noah and his family, even though they also were in sin. For God's own people, again and again, they, they fall into sin, fall into idolatry. He disciplines them. He judges them. He gives them grace. There's this growing tension throughout all the Old Testament. I think of it as if someone's pulling back on a bow, like one of those compound bows where again and again, every instance of, of grace and judgment, we're left wondering, how is this going to get resolved? And it's pulled back, held tight to the time of the New Testament. After 400 years of silence, finally there's an arrow put into the, to the bow and it's let fly and it pierces the heart of sin, pierces the heart of death because it's the Messiah, it's Jesus himself, the only one who can reconcile both the grace of God with the judgment of God. And he does it at the cross. He does it in such a way that we can see that God is in fact just. He will punish all evil, but his grace means that it's not on us, those who deserve it. We see this writ large in the New Testament 
where all the anticipation, all the, the tension and waiting, how is it that the promises of God will finally and ultimately come true for his people? We see it finally in the person of Christ. It's explained in the New Testament in a number of places, but here in Romans, here it's theologically just explained for us to get our, our heads wrapped around it. Here it is in verses 23 to 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us in our sin. And are justified by his grace as a gift. That's the, the grace of God that wipes away our sin. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That, that means sacrifice. That Jesus was sacrificed by his blood to be received by faith. Meaning that in our faith in Christ, all of the condemnation of sin is, is wiped away because he took the penalty. He sacrificed himself. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. When? When did he pass over former sins? Through the whole Old Testament. That whole time. Yes, they were sacrificing bulls and goats, but that, that could not atone for sin. The whole time, God was patiently waiting for the day when his justice would be able to be shown in its fullness and also his grace. Verse 26, it, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just because God righteously, rightly punishes all sin. But justifier because we are made right we are wiped clean for the condemnation was put on Christ, not on us. Let me put it one other way in light of the language of our text from Nahum. See, Jesus endured all of sin's woe, all of sin's shame, all of sin's weakness and death in our place on the cross so that we would be set free because that is what Jesus experienced on the cross. Jesus experienced, he was full of woe did he not say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Miserable was he up there on the cross on our behalf. And was he not full of shame? He was stripped naked. He was exposed. He was spit on. He was laughed at. Shameful on our behalf. And he was weak. He was, he was beaten within an inch of his life. And then, then nailed to the cross where his life was, was gone. He experienced the death that we each deserve. All so that also that we would not have to experience any of those things ever again. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the, the, compelling, the compelling nature of this text is that it is meant to give us a glimpse of ourself, but also, also to lead us to get a glimpse of Christ himself, who is coming as an answer to the weight of sin upon each person of God, each child of God. The response to this text will be varied in a room like this for all of us. It may be that some of us are, are hearing the, the word to examine our lives and are saying, you know, Lord, there are some areas of my life that I have kept in the dark, that I have not wanted to be exposed. God, would you give me the courage to speak to someone about that, to bring it to light, to confess that? There may be others for whom you feel like, man, all I feel is shame. All I feel is heavy and and dark, and yet there the cross is, is telling you that that is, that is no longer upon you. Christ has taken that. That the ultimate goal of even a weighty text like this is that it would drive us forward to, to the person of Christ and for us to see the, the depth of God's love, the depth of his power, that he would remove all of these realities of sin that should be rightly upon us and now no longer are.
that we can walk in the fullness of life, even in this life, even with the troubles, because we have the hope of the life to come. Let's celebrate in our response time. Let's remember and be glad and rejoice for who Jesus is and for even here in this, this heavy text, what it shows us about our need for him. So let's bow in prayer and then we will respond. Lord God, we are thankful. I am thankful, God, for Nahum. Lord, for the words you've written there, for your, your hard and truthful words against the Ninevites, Lord. I pray, God, that we would hear them, not just for them, but for ourselves. And God, if there are any areas of our own lives, God, where we are where we are seeking to cover it, where we are seeking to keep it in the dark, I pray, Lord, that in your grace, you would give us a mind and a heart to, to bring it to light. Lord, that there would be conviction in our hearts by the Spirit of God so that we might get right with you, so that we might claim the truths of the, of the cross, that Jesus, you did experience the woe and shame and, and weakness and death in our place. But more than that, Jesus, you came back to life. And in that life, you, you have the promise for us of a life abundant. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us as we, as we reflect on this text and the truths of the gospel, Lord, that we would be lifted up in that. God, that we would experience your, your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, that we, would, um, that we would be healed, that we'd be transformed. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.